Word of prayer. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. It's such a precious commodity in our lives, such a resource of strengthening and guidance and power. We do pray that your word would inform us tonight, that we might learn from it the truths of our holy faith, that your word might also strengthen us in walking before you obediently. We pray that your word would give us sanctified emotions, that we might more and more love you, to appreciate the grace you have shown us in our Lord Jesus Christ. We do ask these things in his name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews, the ninth chapter. I was reminded this last week that I didn't even make it through eight verses, and tonight I will make sure that no one has any false ideas. I will not make it through more than four or five verses tonight, but I hope that we'll make it worth your while anyway. Hebrews, the ninth chapter. I'm going to read the entire chapter again so that you have the context. It's a very important chapter to see everything in its full setting. But then we'll be concentrating on verses 8 through 12 this evening. Now, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and its sanctuary, a sanctuary of this world. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the first, wherein were the candlestand and the table and the showbread, which is called the holy place. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was a golden pot holding the manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it, cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, of which things we cannot now speak in detail. Now these things, having been thus prepared, the priest go in continually into the first tabernacle accomplishing the services. But into the second, the high priest alone, once in the year, not without blood, which he offers for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Spirit, thus signifying that the way into the holy place has not yet been made manifest, while the first tabernacle is yet standing, which is a figure for the time present, according to which are offered both gifts and sacrifices that cannot, as touching the conscience, make the worshiper perfect, being only with meats and drinks and divers' washings, carnal ordinances imposed until a time of reformation. But Christ, having come a high priest of the good things to come, through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, nor yet through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, entered in once for all into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling them that have been defiled sanctify unto the cleanness of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish unto God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause he is the mediator of a new covenant, that a death having taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, they that have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And I'll conclude our reading at that point, I believe. Hebrews 9 is drawing an extended series of contrasts between the old and new covenant in terms of the Le Levitical service and the sacrifices offered under the old covenant 
and then looking at the far superior work of Jesus Christ as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, who provides a far superior sacrifice and accomplishes a far superior redemption than anything that was available under the shadows of old. We have looked um, for two Bible studies, actually, in some detail at the first seven verses of the chapter, and so I'm going to skip my normal habit of reviewing that and begin right at the eighth verse and see if I can't get through the twelfth verse tonight, as I promised. Notice in the eighth verse these opening words, the Holy Spirit thus signifying. Everything that has gone before in terms of describing the tabernacle and the Levitical ritual at the tabernacle which is described for us in the Bible, or the Old Testament as we call it, is now attributed to the Holy Spirit. And we need to stop and reflect on the theological significance of that. What the Old Testament says, the Holy Spirit says. It was the Holy Spirit thus signifying something. We'll look at what the Holy Spirit was signifying in a moment. But you know, that has great um, importance for us that when we look at the Word of God, we realize it's the Holy Spirit speaking to us. Now, what are some alternative points of view? Some uh, points of view on the Scripture that would be different from that. One very deadly one that misleads a number of God's people is the idea that the Bible is God's Word in human words, where human words is understood as something inferior, sometimes misleading us, um, inadequate to the task. People will say, God gave a very good message to men, but then it was the job of men to pass it on to us, and of course, to err is human, and there are mistakes. There is some fault to be found in the written scriptures because it's the product of uh, human device. The author of Hebrews didn't hold such a view of scripture, did he? He said, the Holy Spirit says. He doesn't even bother to say, well, of course, the Holy Spirit had to work through the intercession of men, the intermediation of men, and um, who knows what the final product would be. He just simply goes right to the source and says, the inspirer of Holy Scripture is the Holy Spirit himself. Another implication. Not only does that affect our doctrine of Scripture, but also should affect our attitude towards Scripture. You know, if I stand before you and I suggest some theological truths tonight, you would be well within your right to have, at some points anyway, an attitude of skepticism, After all, it's just Dr. Bonson sharing his opinions. You might have an attitude of indifference. I might be boring you. Uh, Those sorts of things would be appropriate enough on the human level, because I'm on a par with you. But if the Holy Spirit were to speak to you, let's just imagine that a voice were coming not through the loudspeaker system, but all of a sudden we heard a voice that filled this room. How do you think you'd respond to that? You think you might sit there and go, I wonder how much longer it's going to be until the end of this Bible study. I wonder if you'd say, well, maybe yes, maybe no. Of course not. If it were God speaking to you, you'd sit up and pay attention. You'd want to know exactly what you should do. You'd go out and try to do that if we were directly encountered by God. But you see, when we open the Bible, that's exactly what happens. God is speaking to us in the Bible. And so the way we respond to the Bible is the way we respond to God. I've sometimes in the past uh, made the mistake of trying to read the Bible when I am drowsing. I've sometimes fallen asleep reading a passage of Scripture, and I'm not proud of that. If I'm drowsing, I realize that physically the, you know, the flesh is weak and this is just not the time to do that. I shouldn't open the Bible to begin with. 
And the reason for that is, can you imagine follow, falling asleep in the presence of God speaking to you? It's just not right. And so when we open the Bible, let's remember, God himself is addressing us. Not just the author of Hebrews, not just Paul, not just Peter, but God through these men. So that you may say, not just Peter taught me this morning when I was having my devotions, you can say the Holy Spirit taught me. That's the outlook of the author of this epistle. Now in verse 8, he goes on to tell us what the Holy Spirit was signifying in all of these provisions about which he's spoken in the first seven verses. He says, the Holy Spirit, thus signifying that the way into the holy place had not yet been made manifest, while the first tabernacle is yet standing. In the first seven verses, he has talked about ritual limitations of the Old Covenant. And he says now that just looking at the limitations that the high priest, for instance, had to first offer sacrifice for his own sins before he could offer sacrifice for the sins of others, that he had to go in year after year after year, that there was this constant ritual at the temple, on and on and on, that it was a temple of this world, not the heavenly temple itself. All of those limitations carry a negative inference Meaning, if anyone had, with the eyes of faith, read the Old Testament, they should have been able to draw this conclusion. The Holy Spirit was signifying through this, all along, a certain truth. And the truth that he was signifying is that the way into the holy place was not yet made manifest. The Spirit was telling God's people, you are not yet able to enter God's presence. You cannot come right into the holy place where the Shekinah glory of God is. Now, of course, the high priest could, with severe limitations of time and of circumstance, and only once a year, as it were, with blood, but that very limitation should have told them there was something inadequate about the covenant. There was something wrong that man who was made for fellowship with God could not just, in some unimpeded way, pursue that fellowship. The way into the holy place, it was signified by the Spirit, was not yet open, not fully manifest. And on the other hand, the other side of the coin, if you will, was not only did the limitations of the Old Covenant point to the fact that God, the way to God was not completely open, there was some hope fostered for that way being opened up. Because notice that we are told in verse 8, the Holy Spirit signified that the way into the holy place hath not yet been opened, not yet been manifest. The yet is a very important yet in this verse, isn't it? Because God never intended for that inadequate system to be permanent. He did hold forth the hope, the glimmer, hope, that eventually his people would be able to come right into his presence, as we do today. And the expectation of that better order, when we could walk right into the presence of God, come right before him with our requests and prayers and expect to be accepted uh, despite our sins, that expectation of a better order was deferred, according to our verse, as long as the outer tent was still standing, or you could say as long as the earlier tent was still standing. There's a dispute among the commentators as to whether the Greek adjective first is being used of first temporally, the old tabernacle, or first in the more geographical sense, the first one you entered when you go through the temple system our tabernacle system. It doesn't make a whole lot of difference to our interpretation. We know that the way of entry to God was being deferred as long as that old tabernacle system was still 
erected. The tabernacle symbolized the old Levitical system with all of its imperfections. And that system was canceled, you see, when Christ fulfilled its purpose upon the cross and by a single, all-sufficient sacrifice as an everlasting priest made it possible for us to come before the Lord. But as long as that old temple was there, as long as that old tabernacle was there, the way was still blocked. The author of Hebrews understands very, very well what it means that when Christ died upon the cross, the veil leading to the Holy of Holies was torn apart. Because you see, that meant God indicating that this temple is no longer necessary. Now my people can come right into my presence. Nothing keeps them from that anymore. No longer a veil, no longer an obstacle, no longer anything to keep them apart from me. But as long as that old tabernacle stood and its ritual was recognized as legal, we were still at a distance from God. The author says that the earlier tent was, this is verse 9 now, was symbolic for the present age. Symbolic may not be the best translation. Actually, in Greek, the word can be transliterated into the English word parable. He says the old tabernacle was a parable for the present age. It was a figure of speech looking forward to that age of reformation, that age of change and rectification that would come. It was a foreshadow of what would take place in the time of reformation. It was like an enacted parable. It was a figure of speech carried out. I wonder if you've ever stopped to reflect on this. The Old Covenant was visually oriented. God taught theology to his people through what they saw. They saw the priests put on all of these ornate garments and the, the headdress and so forth. Saw the priests go to the, the altar of sacrifice and the labor of washing and so forth. All of these things were an ornate way of visualizing theological truths. The Old Covenant was visually oriented, giving many pictures of the coming salvation. But the whole redemptive order at that time was only parabolic. It was only symbolic, looking ahead. By contrast, the New Covenant, in which we now live, is oriented not toward seeing theological truths, but hearing theological truths. The New Covenant is oriented toward the Word, and the pun now is intended, because the Word, the living Word, has come in flesh. It is now inappropriate to worship God through the kind of ritual that the Old Covenant understood and experienced. And why is it inappropriate? Well, let's go slowly. Why did they have a high priest who dressed up in that funny way? Why did they have an outward tent in which they had to go through certain ritual actions? Why did they have to avoid eating pork? Why did they have to keep their garments separate in terms of the kind of fiber that was in them? Why was it they could not touch a dead body? Why were they unclean if they had a seminal emission at night or something like that? When you look at all those very strange, what we call ceremonial laws of the Old Covenant, the point is God was putting out in a very open 
we might say crass way certain theological truths about separation, about purity, about sacrifice, about atonement. But what were all those things intended to point to? Our author says they were parabolic. They were symbolic. They were looking ahead to something else. The reason the Jews had those is because they did not yet have that to which the Old Covenant rituals pointed. But now that we have that which they pointed to, the Son of God, our Savior, who has died on the cross and risen again, that kind of ritual which was intended to be a foreshadow makes no sense when the substance is here. Why don't we um, engage in animal sacrifices today? Well, you're going to, I hope 90% of you would say, well, because Jesus is the all-sufficient sacrifice for men, we don't need animal sacrifices anymore. But now, what if I said, well, that's okay. I, I agree with that theologically. But in our church, we want to remember the Lord's sacrifice, and so we sacrifice animals to remember what Jesus did. You see, that would be so theologically wrong-headed, so muddled, that it would be incredible. It would be heretical, as a matter of fact. Because that would suggest that now that you have the reality, you could have the shadow as a reminder of the reality. No, the shadow looked to the coming of the reality. Now that the reality is here, we don't need shadows anymore. We don't need rituals anymore. We don't have the gospel in pictures except to the extent the new covenant gives us, which is limited. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. But in terms of high priestly garb, holy of holies, animal sacrifices, labor of washing, all those outward ordinances that were pictures, God now declares his word to us in verbal form. The emphasis changes from eye to ear, from the old to the new covenant. I think there's a very significant underlying theological um, truth there that I want you to get hold of. It will help you understand a number of things. Brian, have you been trying to get my attention? Let's, um, let's make your question even harsher. Let's, let's push it even further. Why is it that when God appeared to Adam and Eve in the garden, he didn't just die for their sins right then and there? Why didn't God come and say, well, you're going to need a Savior, so here it is, boom, in some ritual act of atonement or some actual expiatory act take place, and that would have taken care of it, and then God said, okay, now we'll just have the new heavens and the new earth. Or I can turn your question around. Let's bring it into the New Covenant. Why in the New Covenant do we have this period between the two advents of Christ? Why do we have Jesus come to save us from our sins and then we have this terrible struggle with sin in us and sanctification, the world hating the kingdom, the kingdom growing, the world fighting it. I mean, you have this struggle going on and then eventually we know that the day is coming when a new heavens and a new earth will be instituted wherein righteousness dwells. Why, is, why didn't God bring in the new heavens and new earth in the Garden of Eden? Why didn't he bring it in at the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ? You want to suggest an answer, Brian? Yeah, uh, I heard a big man about this uh, rat in our school. I think, if I understand your answer, that um, it is correct that God is demonstrating through history his, the fullness of his character in wrath and in mercy <laughs> upon men. That's true. Had, had the new heavens and the new earth been instituted at the time of Adam and Eve, that would have been universal salvation, right? The human race as it was then constituted. And so because God is going to separate sheep from goats, 
vessels of wrath from vessels of glory. Um, the course of history is a process of, of sorting that out. But there's also something about God's wanting to declare his glory, I think, to man, not just the separation of mankind. There's something about the historical process that prepares us for the glory that is to come. It doesn't seem at all unlikely to me that if God had instituted the new heavens and the new earth at the time of Adam and Eve, they would not have appreciated it, or maybe it would have been too much for them, would have been overwhelming to them. And so through the course of history, we have the gospel in pictures, the Jews kind of stumbling and bumbling along there, but understanding in a vague way if they pay attention to what the Holy Spirit signifying, there is a way of redemption coming. Then Jesus comes and he shows us what love is in the flesh and dies for our sins. And we're struggling, that's why we're here tonight, right? I'm assuming that you are here tonight because all of you want to understand the scripture better. When you became a Christian, you didn't, boom, have full theological understanding. You're growing and so forth. And throughout history, the church is growing as well. And we're struggling with the world. We want to see the victory of God in this world. If God had instituted the new heavens and the new earth at the time of Jesus' death and resurrection, we would not have had universal salvation. At that point, we would have had universal damnation. Interesting. The course of history is necessary so that the goodness of God can draw us to repentance. If God... Is, Remember this, Brian, at, at the point that God does institute the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more changing camps, no changeover from hell to heaven. As long as God in mercy holds back the final day, there's still the opportunity for repentance and for drawing people into the kingdom. Okay. One of the ways in which we learn about the gospel um, in the New Covenant is we read things like Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, that kind of remark would not have been made if there hadn't been an Old Testament period of preparation where we'd understand animal sacrifice, substitution, and so forth. And so, um, maybe I could answer your question by saying, why is it we don't teach algebra to our first graders? Well, they have to first learn digital math, right? And then they have to learn factoring and so forth. And then they have to learn you know, either decimals or, or um, um, whatever else. They got it step by step. I forget what math is all about. Um, you, can't, you can't tell the whole truth to a child about math or about history or what have you. The same way I think God was condescending to our weakness to say a little at a time, visual pictures first, kind of like children, right? Children have picture books, and then eventually they graduate to the ability to deal with symbols and to read. And I'm not going to make more of this than I have the right to theologically, but is that maybe not a natural reflection of the supernatural truth that God begins with picture book theology in the Old Covenant, and then eventually we get to the place where the emphasis is upon the declared word. Well, let me move on. The point I want to make is that no picture or no ritual can match the reality that was pictured in the Old Covenant. And since that's true, we no longer worship God through elaborate ritual. That's why in our congregation we have what's called a Puritan approach to worship. We don't come to God through symbols and through elaborate acts of worship and so forth. It's a simple worship based upon prayer, preaching, singing God's praise. And then, of course, there are minimal sacramental acts 
but they are only those which Christ himself has instituted for the new covenant. And as I've said already, baptism and the Lord's Supper, where we do see still, uh, in a small way, pictures of salvation. The Westminster Confession of Faith understood the perspective that I'm giving to you tonight. It shouldn't surprise you. This is an amazing document. I encourage you more and more to read and study it, learn it. In chapter 7 of the Confession, which is on the covenant that God makes with man, we read in um, sections 5 and 6 these words. It's, it's a little bit longer than I might like for reading purposes, but do pay attention. Very good stuff. Speaking of the covenant of grace, it says, This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and the time of the gospel. The same covenant, but the mode of administration was different. Under the law, under the old covenant, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying. That's a word you don't use in common English today. For signifying means to signify ahead of time, to foreshadow, point to, and advance. All for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation and is called the Old Testament. Under the gospel, when Christ the substance was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are, and notice the difference, had all this, this list of ritual acts, paschal lamb, sacrifices, and so forth of the old covenant, but now the administration of God's same one covenant of grace is by means of the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number and administered in more simplicity, no doubt about that, and less outward glory, I mean, there's nothing like the high priest of the old covenant that you see in a Presbyterian church today. No doubt about that. Administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. The Bible says you get more for your money in the New Covenant. We have fewer ordinances, preaching of the word and two sacraments. That's it. But the gospel, the covenant of grace is held forth in greater efficacy and power in those few ordinances than in all the ritual acts and pictures of the Old Testament period of foreshadowing. There are not therefore two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. We do not believe, therefore, that there were two ways of salvation. We do not believe that there are different covenants God comes up with as finding a way to get man into heaven. That is a very disrespectful view of God, to say God tried one way of salvation and it didn't work. Apparently he didn't really understand human nature. He didn't understand what he was dealing with. And so... Um, See, I, I know how disrespectful it is to say that about God because I know what it is to come up with an administration that fails. I do that as a teacher all the time. I say, well, here's a lesson plan. This is what we're going to do. Here's how you're going to be graded. And I find out way too much, way too fast. Got to go back and change my plans. 
Now, I don't want to think of God as being like me <laughs> in that regard. God comes and he says to the Jews, according to dispensationalism of a historic sort, well, here's this law, keep this law, and then this do and thou shalt live. Obey the law, and then you'll be saved. And then God goes, oh boy, that's, that's asking way too much. No one's getting saved. I better alter the plan. Better make it easier. Now, by faith, I'll let you be saved. Now, this is a caricature, and if a dispensationalist were hearing me tonight, he'd probably be pulling his hair out, saying, that isn't quite the way we say it. No, it isn't, but it is the bottom line. It is what it comes down to, that God has to change his different covenants or plans of salvation. We have been taught for years in the Reformed faith, God didn't change anything except the outward form or administration of the same promise that he always made. And that promise was always salvation by grace. And you saw that when the high priest took animal blood into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. And now we realize what that was all about because Jesus came and entered into the real Holy of Holies with his own blood there to appear before God. The picture, the reality. The way of salvation is the same. Old Testament saints look forward to it. New Testament saints look back to it. But what saves them? Looking to the same thing. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um... I'm not even going to make it to what I promised you. I'm going to make it to if I don't hurry here. I have a number of verses about how the Old Testament looks forward to the New. I'm just going to cut this down to a few of them. Turn to John 8:56. Old Testament saints looked ahead to something beyond their present experience, the Bible would tell us. John 8:56. Jesus says, "Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad." Dispensationalists have a hard time with that. Abraham saw the day of Jesus. That's what he was looking to. But then they'll say, well, we can deal with that. Abraham was saved by faith, we're saved by faith, so that's okay. Well, but you see, Moses did the same thing, and Moses was supposed to be saved by law. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29. Hebrews 11, verse 29. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea. That doesn't look right. Well, I know it's in Hebrews 11. I'll find it. Hold on. <laughs> We're getting a lot of suggestions. Verse 26. All of this about the faith of Moses accounting the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked unto the recompense of reward. How could Moses, how could Moses, in this legalistic covenant of works, have been accounting the reproach of Christ greater? Moses was serving Christ, the author of Hebrews says. Abraham looked ahead to the day of Christ. Moses looked ahead to the day of Christ. In fact, on the road to Emmaus, in Luke 24, you'll read that the saints on the road to Emmaus, to whom the resurrected Christ appeared, he said, didn't, it, didn't you understand that the Christ had to die and rise again, that he had to suffer then enter into his glory? And beginning from Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The whole old covenant was forward-looking to Jesus Christ. Abraham knew that. Moses knew that. And all the prophets knew that. And so we are assured that our confession of faith is correct. One covenant of grace differently administered. Foreshadows and now substance. Promise, now reality. 
anticipation and now fulfillment. Let me move ahead to verse 10. I have to drop the rest of those notes. Verse 9 says that that old order was a figure of the time present according to which are offered gifts and sacrifices that cannot, as touching the conscience, make the worshiper perfect. Why is that? Because they were only with meats and drinks and divers' washings, carnal ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. The old covenant sacrifices were external in nature. You could translate the one phrase there, regulations for the body. Carnal ordinances. They were just external rites. They did not deal with the internal problem of man's soul. A passing note, that expression, divers' washings, in my translation, I don't know how you will have it in your various translations, should read different baptisms or various baptisms. That is the word. And the reason I stress that is because this is the best verse in the New Testament to go to when a Baptist tells you that the word baptism means immersion. He says, okay, well, here we read of various baptisms of the Old Covenant. And when you go and you do a survey of Hebrews 9 and 10 of the rites of the Old Covenant that refer to um, purification, they are all sprinkling ordinances. The divers' baptisms that he's speaking of are clearly sprinkling baptisms, not immersion baptisms. And so I, I'm not quite sure how the Baptist has ever historically been able to persuade people when this verse is there, but in context it's clear that baptism means sprinkling or effusion. He tells us that those rituals, outward carnal rituals, were imposed until a time of Reformation. The word imposed here should be understood as were in legal force. We shouldn't read that like, you know, pressed down upon them oppressively. It really, what that means is they were enacted and had force until the time of Reformation. The time of Reformation meaning the day when everything is made right, everything is reformed or rectified. We might say when the shadows are finally replaced by the reality that they looked ahead to. And then in verse 11, having said what he has about the old covenant order, its limitations, that pointing to a time of Reformation, he comes now to the punchline of his argument. But, on the other hand, he says, Christ having come a high priest of the good things to come through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, nor yet through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood entered in once for all into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption. Two of the most glorious verses in all the Bible. Look at the theology that's contained there. The blood of the sacrificial victim is not now animal blood, but is the blood of the priest himself. The priest goes to the altar and instead of substituting an animal sacrifice, puts himself upon the altar in the place of sinners. The imagery here is taken from the annual Day of Atonement as its background. I think you know that from our previous lessons. And what the author tells us in the opening line of verse 11 is that everything was changed when Christ came. Beautiful expression. But Christ having come, a high priest of the good things to come. Now that Jesus is here, everything's changed. It's like a new day. It's a day of rectification and reformation. It's a day of fulfillment. Think about it as Christmas in a, in a child's mentality. 
The pun's intended, of course, because we do think of Christmas as the celebration of Christ's coming. But, you know, children look forward to Christmas all year long, don't they? Then it finally comes. Well, the whole Old Covenant, you see, was looking forward to Christmas, in a sense. And then Jesus came. Finally it arrived. But Christ having come, a high priest of the good things to come. He's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and thus of the good things to come. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul reminds us of the effect of Christ coming into this world in terms of everything that God's people were looking forward to. 2 Corinthians 1.20, For how many soever be the promises of God, in him is the yes, wherefore also through him is the amen, unto the glory of God through us. Paul says no matter how many promises God gave of old, when Jesus came they became yes and amen. They became affirmed and confirmed. I like the yes and amen. It has a better sound to it, but that's the effect theologically. God has affirmed them, he said yes to them, and then he has confirmed them. Jesus is the yes and the amen of every promise. So when Jesus came, everything changed. It was no longer an age of anticipation, no longer a day of prophecy and looking ahead. It was now a day of fulfillment, now a day of realization. The new age is upon us. The Bible tells us that when Jesus came to serve as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, he entered the more perfect tabernacle that is not of this world. Notice that in verse 11. But Christ, having come a high priest of the good things to come, through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Well, then in what tabernacle does this priest minister, Doug? That's right. Look at verse 24 of this very same chapter. But Christ entered not into a holy place made with hands like in pattern to the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear before the face of God for us. See, Jesus didn't bother with this earthly shadow that the Levitical priest ministered in because that was just a picture of going before the presence of God. Jesus went right into heaven to the very throne room of God to the actual reality and their ministers as our high priest. Christ having come a high priest, not of the old order, but of the good things to come, now ministers in a greater and more perfect tabernacle, one not made with hands, not of this creation, but rather in heaven. And now verse 12, I'd like to take the remainder of our hour together to just concentrate on this. Nor yet through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, entered in once for all into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. It is very important that you notice that verse 12 teaches Christ entered heaven's tabernacle through his own blood, not with his own blood. I think you'll probably be surprised at the amount of damage, heretical speculation that's gone on through the history of the church, people not catching the distinction. To enter through his blood means that that is the means by which he has access to God. To enter with his own blood means that somehow Jesus had his own blood in his hands when he appeared before God. And you say, how can anybody believe that? I don't know, but it's been done. Here are some strange views of Christ's blood and of Christ's priesthood that I would have you all avoid. We don't get into vain speculation. Some have argued that Christ's body lacked any blood after he died on the cross that every drop of blood was drained out of his body so that he might now enter heaven with his own blood. 
not in his veins, but as the priest carries blood before the throne of God. A, a very um, deplorable mistake, uh, failure to see the difference between the shadow, <laughs> what the Old Testament priest did, carrying animal blood, and the reality, Christ, in virtue of his shed blood, entering into God's presence. Some have said that the blood that was shed at Calvary is now restored to Christ's veins or to a heavenly depository because it's called incorruptible blood in 1 Peter chapter 1. Since it's incorruptible, that blood must literally be somewhere. And uh, then there's two schools of thought on that. One is there's a depository of incorruptible blood, a vessel somewhere in heaven that's holding Christ's blood. It's not in his veins. Others, that it's all been restored to his veins. Kind of a superstitious idea that whatever was shed at the cross has to now be taken back off the ground, as it were, and put back into the veins of Christ because it's incorruptible and sacred blood. This is not theology. This is superstition. Others have said that the blood of Christ refers to a life made available to someone else, not to death. Very strange. People don't want to see in the death of Christ, I don't want to see in the blood of Christ a reference to death as the price of sin. They want to see rather that since life is in the blood, Jesus' blood means his life is available as a power for the rest of us now. Well, remember that the author's talking about blood shed here. He's talking about death. There's no way around that. Christ's sacrifice, others say, was made in heaven, not on earth. That when he died on the cross, that's one thing. But then he had to go into heaven and make a sacrifice before God. As though the, the Levitical picture of what took place on earth literally takes place in heaven. Another mistaken notion. We are told that in heaven Christ is making a perpetual self-sacrificial offering of himself. And by the way, Christ always sacrificing himself in heaven corresponds to what on earth? The Roman Catholic Mass, exactly right. The Eucharist. So whenever the priest makes the body of Christ on earth, that corresponds to his perpetually sacrificing himself in heaven. Horrible theology. We're told that Christ did not take up his high priestly function until he entered into heaven. That he was not a high priest upon the cross. He was not a priest until he entered with blood before the presence of God. We are told that Christ now before God is pleading with the Father to change his attitude toward us. And that the blood is supposed to be something of a bribery, you know, to God. So here's blood. Now don't be angry with him anymore. What a horrible picture of God. Christ was a priest. He sacrificed himself on the cross. And that blood is not bribery. That blood is satisfaction. That blood shows that justice has been uh, taken care of. That the demand of God, wages of sin is death, has now been met. And on that basis, he enters into heaven for us. Through, on the basis of, in virtue of his blood, not with blood in his hands. So let's get away from these superstitious ideas that just lead to bad theology. But notice as well in verse 12. Nor yet through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered in, I love these words, once and for all. The work that Christ did is now accomplished. It's unrepeatable. It can't be done by anybody else. It need not be done by Jesus himself again. And so in the old covenant where you saw the day of atonement, year after year after year, sacrifices made day after day after day, Jesus offered up a sacrifice once and that finished it. Isn't that what he said upon the cross? It is finished. No more. 
Once and for all it was done. And that too shows the horror of the Roman Catholic Mass. The perpetuation of the sacrifice of Christ is so uh, contrary to the theology of Scripture. Christ sacrificed himself but once, and that's all it takes. Now, if Christ went as our high priest before God, we need to understand the nature of his work. In chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, we've already learned that as a priest, Christ interceded to God for us. Hebrews 7 at verses 24 and 25. But he, because he abideth forever, hath his priesthood unchangeable. Wherefore also he is able to save to the uttermost them that draw near unto God through him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. We draw near to God through him, he intercedes for us. And so when Chapter 9, verse 12, speaks of the high priestly work of Christ. We must think of it in the category of intercession. Christ is interceding for his people as their high priest. And he intercedes for them as their representative. Chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ entered not into a holy place made with hands like and pattern to the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear before the face of God, don't drop the last two words, for us. He entered in representing us. And so, two things you know about the nature of Christ's work. It is intercessory, it is representative. He intercedes as the representative of his people. You say, now Dr. Bonson, you obviously are building towards something here. You're getting pretty excited about that. What's the significance of that? That Christ's high priestly work is intercessory and representative. Well, I want to tell you that points to the substitutionary atonement that those for whom Christ functions as a high priest, he died as their substitute. And if Christ died as a substitute, he died only for the elect. You see how you can't avoid the doctrine of limited atonement? If Christ died as a substitute, meaning he intercedes as a representative to God, then those for whom he intercedes, those whom he represents, must be saved. Substitutionary atonement demands it. If the price has been offered in substitution, God cannot demand it further. If he did, as Spurgeon said years ago, he would be unjust. The very justice of God is at stake in whether you believe in the limited atonement or not. Because the atonement was a substitutionary act, it had to be for the elect and only the elect. Christ does not represent and intercede for the world to God. How do I know that? John 17, verse 9. Jesus offers what is called his high priestly prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's betrayed and goes to the cross. And in that high priestly prayer of John, the 17th chapter, we read at verse 9, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. Jesus says explicitly, I do not pray for the world. I do not now intercede for the world, Father. I pray for those that you've given me. I will be their priest. I will represent them and intercede for them. You need to remember as well that Christ's prayer to the Father is always heard. Look at John eleven forty two real quickly. Jesus in passing says that. John 11, verse 42. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the multitudes... On and on, he goes on. Jesus says, Father, I know that whatever I pray, you heed. I'm aware of that. If Jesus intercedes in prayer to the Father for anybody, the Father will heed him. 
And so if you maintain that Jesus in his high priestly work intercedes for all mankind, then you must hold that all mankind is saved. Christ therefore died only for the elect, those who are saved, or else we are left with the conclusion that all men are saved indiscriminately, the doctrine of universal salvation. And my friends, what I want to tell you this evening, without a sense of pride and party spirit, with a sense of commitment to the holy word of God, is that Arminianism leads logically to universalism. Arminianism cannot logically keep from teaching that all men are saved. Because Arminians say that Jesus died on the cross for each and every man. But if he did, remember Hebrews says he died as an intercessory representative. He died as a substitute to make atonement. And if he did, then those for whom he died, because the Father will not deny him, because the Father is just, if he paid the price for those men, they must be saved. Now, how does the Arminian try to sidestep that dreadful, heretical conclusion? And I'm sure you've heard this in so many evangelistic campaigns. It's just become part of our theological you know, backdrop. Or it's just ingrained in us, this idea that when Jesus died on the cross, he died to make a hypothetical or potential atonement. So the Arminian says, he died for all men, but what he did in dying for them did not obtain salvation. It only made it possible. And now what men must do is actualize or realize the benefit of Christ's saving work by believing in him. And that's offensive to me because... To be honest with you, it doesn't give God the glory that he deserves. If Jesus did so much for my salvation and then God expected me to do the rest, I would not be saved today. Because, you know, faith is not something I could whoop up inside myself. Faith is a gift, isn't it? For you are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The faith that I have in Jesus Christ today is not my own work. It's not due to my own brilliance. It's not due to my own religious character or ethical code. That faith is the gift of God to me. I have nothing to boast about in my salvation. All glory goes to God. The Arminian divides the glory. Jesus did so much, you realize it. You had the good sense to put your name on the, the dotted line. Isn't that right? You had the good sense to come forward and accept the gift from God. How often have we heard these deplorable views of Christ's death on the cross that Jesus is out there pleading, please take this gift, please take this gift. And then if you're a good enough person to take it, then it becomes real. This verse, Hebrews 9 verse 12, is the ultimate refutation of Arminianism. Because not only does it tell us that Jesus interceded as a representative, as our high priest, it tells us that he did not do something that was merely potential. He did not offer a possible atonement. What's the verse actually say? Nor yet through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered in once for all into the holy place, ha listen to this, having obtained eternal redemption. Jesus did not make it possible. Jesus did not hypothetically accomplish it. He obtained it. Those for whom he died, he obtained their salvation, their eternal redemption. And so this verse destroys any thought of a hypothetical redemption. By the way, hypothetical redemption is senseless in the first place. Redemption means to buy back and set free. Slaves are redeemed. The manumission price is paid and the slave is now free. What would a possible manumission price be? Is that like telling the guy who's selling the slave, maybe I'll pay the price? And he says, okay, you're potentially set free. 
It doesn't make any sense at all. The only kind of redemption that makes sense, I mean, you go to the store and you say, I'm going to offer a hypothetical payment now for the milk that I have in front of me. No, you've either paid or you haven't paid. The slave is either set free or not. The price has been rendered or it hasn't. When Jesus went before the very face of God for our salvation, he obtained it. He didn't just make it possible. He actually secured it fully. And again, I praise God for that, because otherwise none of us would have actualized it ourselves. On the Arminian scheme, no one would be saved. And any who were would be saved, and they'd have to divide the glory with God, because they were good enough to finish out the work God started. I'm not ashamed to be a Calvinist. I'm not ashamed of the Reformed faith. The Reformed faith is just the gospel. It's just the good news that it's all of God, it's all of grace, and Jesus paid it all. And therefore, all to him I owe. And what did he get for us there? Not just potentially, but actually eternal redemption. Referring to our being set free forever. The background for this, liberation from slavery in Egypt. The ultimate act of redemption. When God redeemed his people and took them out of the land of bondage. But of course the day of atonement then goes even further. The liberation for Egypt from Egypt was just a picture of liberation from sin, right? And so redemption means we are set free. The price has been paid. Our freedom has been secured. If you're anything like me, I think you probably have days where you are troubled over the fact that you're a sinner and that you continue to struggle with it. And this is a very comforting verse to me to know that through my struggles, I nevertheless have eternal liberation. And Christ did it. I'm not ashamed to be a Calvinist. I'm not ashamed of the Reformed faith. The Reformed faith is just the gospel. It's just the good news that it's all of God, it's all of grace, and Jesus paid it all. And therefore, all to him I owe. And what did he get for us there? Not just potentially, but actually eternal redemption. Referring to our being set free forever. The background for this, liberation from slavery in Egypt. The ultimate act of redemption. When God redeemed his people and took them out of the land of bondage. But of course the day of atonement then goes even further. The liberation for Egypt from Egypt was just a picture of liberation from sin, right? And so redemption means we are set free. The price has been paid, our freedom has been secured. If you're anything like me, I think you probably have days where you are troubled over the fact that you're a sinner and that you continue to struggle with it. This is a very comforting verse to me to know that through my struggles I nevertheless have eternal liberation. And Christ did it for me. And there's a great comfort in knowing that it doesn't depend upon me, but that he did it as my representative and fully secured it. I would be in utter despair if he had left even a portion of 1% of the work for me to do. Because I don't think I ever would have done it. The Bible tells me that because I was spiritually dead, I could not have done it for myself. And so that's why this passage is so important. I'm sorry I had to hurry through the end of it, but Hebrews 9, the whole chapter, but then verse 12, is just packed with theology of the atonement. Any questions you'd like to ask before we take a break and have some time of prayer? I've done the whole talking tonight except for one or two questions. I'll try to do better next time. Jeff? Wouldn't also the continuation of the animal blood sacrifices be a reproach to Christ because of his 
ultimately say, you know, listen, thanks a lot for going through all the pain and agony and suffering you did on the cross and splitting the blood that you did in Gethsemane, but really... If anyone believed that um, the animal sacrifices had a toning effect, of course it would be an insult to Christ. But those who would do that, or those who were looking forward to it being reinstituted in the rebuilt temple, will argue we're not doing it for atoning purposes, we're doing it for memorial purposes. The animal sacrifices are just a way of remembering what Jesus did. And that's kind of like having an XKE, an actual flesh, or whatever, fiberglass before you and having the shadow of the XKE and saying well I'm going to turn away from the XKE from the car itself and just look at the shadow because that helps me remember my XKE preposterous we do not go through the animal sacrifices to remember the death of Christ we have the death of Christ the reality and besides that I'll add an argument to this Jesus told us how to remember it and he told us we should remember it at the table and not at the altar of animal sacrifice. And so I think it's just dreadful theology. And I take it as prima facie evidence that a person who would be willing to do that probably does not understand the gospel at all. That's how bad a mistake that really is. Other questions? Allery? Well, I think uh, the points you've raised take care of Arminian of them, but on that one issue of a hypothetical of uh, I would imagine that they would take the position that it's like a deposit made in court to pay a fine that will not be realized until the check is written. So, if, you, if it weren't for the other problems, uh, maybe this is a, isn't quite as... Well, the difficulty is that when the court accepts the check, whoever it's you know, paid by, in your behalf, they can no longer demand payment from you. That is an actual atonement. That is an actual liberation of your obligation to the court. Uh, the, the whole notion that we have a deposit in court waiting for us to actualize is just not true to the way men do things because a fine is either paid or it's not paid. Once it is paid, it can't be demanded anymore. And besides, we have the remaining problem that if we have to go into court and write our names on the dotted line to get the benefit of that deposit, allegedly, none of us have the spiritual wherewithal to go in and do that. I love the way Dr. Van Til used to um, talk about Ephesians, the second chapter, where Paul says we are dead in trespasses and sins. Dr. Van Til would say, Im imagine that I had concocted some chemical device that um, when dead people drink it, they would live again. <laughs> and um, he said, now you just, you know, run with my illustration. And what I do is I go to a graveyard some night, and I set up an evangelistic truck, and I get up there with the loudspeakers, and I say, all of you who are dead, come up forward, and I'll give you this, and you'll live again. He's exactly right. How preposterous. Dead people cannot even come forward to get the life-giving potion. If God doesn't apply it, we won't respond at all. And what does Paul say in Ephesians 2? You were dead. Not sick. Not weak. Not almost. Gone. Dead. Gone. And you can't do anything for yourself and you're dead. So Vantil says you know it has to be by God's grace because only God can raise the dead. And that's what he did in my life. I tell you, I... 
J. Gresham Machen put it well. He said the Arminian may have his hypothetical atonement. He may have his universal atonement that doesn't save anyone in particular, but just in some indiscriminate way makes possible for all men. Machen said, I'd much rather have the gospel that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for me. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for us. Thank you for interceding to the Father on our behalf. For we had nothing to offer in our own, in the righteousness of our own, no merit, no privilege, no legal access. Had it not been for you and your work, we would be eternally barred from the throne of grace. But how we thank you that you loved us in the way that you did, being willing to leave your throne of glory and to come to this miserable earth to take on human nature and to die a criminal's death. We thank you that somehow in the paradoxical and ironical good pleasure of God, that apparent defeat was an eternal victory. Because when you died, you died for your people and therefore secured their liberation. Lord Jesus, thank you that you died for us. Not just for the mass of humanity, but that you did it with us in mind, each and every one of us individually, that you loved us in that degree. Because we know that you've known our names from all eternity and that you had them in mind when you went to the cross. We thank you as well that you, you see of the travail of your soul and you are satisfied, that not one of those for whom you die is lost. We thank you that your sheep hear your voice and follow you. And we thank you that you have numbered us among that flock. For we pray in your precious name. Amen.